morning again. As most of you will know, we've been working through the Acts of the Apostles, but as some of us may not have been here every week, we're going to start by putting the chapter, or part of a chapter, that Ian read for us in context. So we see right back in Luke chapter 20, 20 and 21 that Jesus spent a lot of time teaching in the temple in the last days of his life. He was, of course, Jewish, as were all the disciples. Jesus' teaching challenged all the powerful groups in the leadership of Judaism. They sorted that problem out comprehensively. They got the troublemaker crucified, and that, they thought, was the end of that. Except, as we all know, it wasn't. Infuriatingly for the Jewish leaders, within a couple of days of his death, the followers of Jesus were starting to spread the story of his resurrection. We've looked at the accounts of Jesus' return to heaven. It's not up there, which is, <laughs> is there a way of putting it up there? Sorry, we've looked at the accounts of Jesus' return to heaven in Acts chapter 1 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. By the end of Acts 2, we see the early believers, at this point all of Jewish background, back spending a lot of their time meeting together and teaching in the temple, as Jesus himself did, as we heard, and no doubt rekindling the anger of the various groupings of Jewish leaders. Last week, in Acts 3, we saw how it came to a head, now this rabble of fishermen and their hangers-on are not just gathering and preaching in a corner of the temple. The whole temple is ringing with the shouts of a man that they have had the audacity to heal in the temple. He's jumping around, shouting in a most unseemly and irreligious manner, and the gullible crowd have flocked to him. So much for thinking they'd got rid of the Jesus problem. That fisherman is declaring to the crowd that Jesus is alive, that he's just healed the lame beggar, and not only that, but Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited king and deliverer of Israel, who they, the Jewish leaders, had murdered. So that brings us to chapter 4. And perhaps for a moment, we should see this from the perspective of the Jewish leaders. Peter and John were in the very centre of Judaism, so perhaps if we were thinking about the Anglican Church, that might be a little bit like Canterbury Cathedral. So there they are, right in the nerve centre of Judaism, uh, in that most holy place, they're proclaiming that the Jewish leaders had made the gravest error possible in killing Jesus, who was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, while at the same time clearly implying that Jesus was God himself. This is clearly what Peter meant. As we read, he referred to Jesus as the author of life. This was blasphemous beyond belief to the Jews, who recited daily their creed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And to add insult to injury, the disciples were talking about the resurrection, which the Sadducees group objected to doctrinally. So the two apostles are arrested to keep them quiet, to stop the trouble, but not before many have believed in their message and been added to the rapidly growing new church. The following day, Peter and John stood in the midst of the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin, the sort of religious court, which apparently had 71 members drawn from the religious elite of the nation. It included the Sadducees, many of them were priests, apparently, and the Pharisees, many of whom were scribes. And the Sanhedrin apparently sat in a semicircle, all 71 of them, 
um, with the person who they were trying or examining standing in the middle. So it was designed to be very intimidating. And the council members were rich, powerful, educated men. By contrast, Peter and John were uneducated fishermen. Given that the Jewish leaders didn't want to hear any more about Jesus, it seems that they may have shot themselves in the foot by asking, by what power or by what name did you do this? Perhaps they were just meaning who in the temple authority said that you could do this. But Peter, the same Peter who had once fearfully denied knowing Jesus, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, takes full advantage of the opportunity they'd given him, refusing to be intimidated by the Sanhedrin. The man, Peter says, has been healed in the name of Jesus. And if I can paraphrase, paraphrase he goes on to say, you remember the same Jesus who you leaders crucified, the same Jesus who God raised from the dead, the same Jesus who proves he is alive by continuing to heal the sick. It's his power, it's his authority. It was done in the name of Jesus. He goes on, not only has Jesus brought physical healing to this man, he is the one, the only one, who can bring complete healing, including rescuing people from the power of evil, sin and death. The leaders are astonished at the boldness and the fluent speech of this rough fisherman. As we read, their hands are tied, they're infuriated and would like to punish Peter and John but it's hard to argue that they've done something wrong when the man that, the, that they have miraculously healed is standing by. As we read, they tell them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, which Peter courageously challenges. And then the disciples return to their friends and together they pray a passionate prayer for God to give them boldness to continue to proclaim the word of God. God answers their prayer, they have another dramatic experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and being given the ability to continue to speak boldly for Jesus. There is a huge amount in this passage. I found it quite daunting when I first looked at it to know where to start. There are three key sections. Peter's proclamation in verse 12 that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Peter's assertion that they should obey God rather than the Jewish leaders in verse 19. And then at the end of the passage, the disciples' prayer for boldness. So we're going to spend a little time looking at each of those sections. Firstly, Peter's statement in verse 12 that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. What do we make of this strong black and white statement in our pluralistic society? We live in a multi-religious environment, in a culture that believes in individual choice. There is a supermarket approach to faith where you can browse the aisles of belief and choose whatever suits you best. You might even go to the pick and mix counter and put a little of each into your bag. There's a common view in our society, not in here, but in our society, that it doesn't make much difference which you choose, as they're much the same anyway, and all roads lead to the top of the mountain. Into this environment, do we dare to say these words of Peter, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name 
under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Do we still believe that Jesus is unique? Do we still believe that he is the only way to God? This really matters because if he is, then it's imperative that we pull out all the stops to let other people know about Jesus. But if Jesus isn't unique, if he isn't the only way, then frankly, why bother? People can find their own route to God however they like. So this issue really matters. One of the problems we've had in the Western world is that declaring the gospel of Jesus got mixed up with colonialism. The attitudes associated with European colonialism have rightly been discredited. There were and are no grounds for thinking that European or Western culture is superior to any other, and that cultural superiority was misplaced and wrong. But sadly, many people have thrown the baby out with the bathwater and assumed that the very idea of preaching the gospel of Jesus was also part of that arrogant mindset. We need to think carefully about this. Do we agree that preaching the gospel is arrogant, that, that it means we're pushing our views onto others as if we were superior? And if we don't agree, can we explain why not? So first, we're going to stick with our passage and be sure of what Peter was saying, because some authors, uncomfortable with the message, have argued that when Peter said we can only be saved through the name of Jesus that Peter only meant physical healing through Jesus. The base, there is a basis for the argument because the word translated healed in Acts, referring to the man, and saved in verse 12, referring to the whole world, come from the same root, so there is an overlap in meaning between healed and saved. However, when we look at the message of the passage as a whole and read Peter's sermon in chapter 3, it's very clear that Peter moved deliberately from talking about a particular physical healing to saying that Jesus offers complete wholeness, including salvation and deliverance from sin and death. Other people have suggested that when Peter said there is no other name by which we must be saved, he did so because of a very limited knowledge of the world. They suggest that he didn't know there were other religions, um, and that had he known that, he wouldn't have made this statement. Um, but to say that is really ignorant of the circumstances in which Peter lived, because uh, Israel had been invaded by the Romans who had brought their multiple gods with them. So Peter was very well aware that Judaism wasn't the only belief system around. Um, so still, into that multi-religious environment, he declared that Jesus is the name by which you must be saved. So we have to take Peter's statement that salvation is found in no one else at face value. It's not a popular message in our context of relativism, meaning that many people don't believe that anything at all is absolutely true for everybody. It's what relativism is. It may be true for you, but it's not necessarily true for everybody. So let's come back to our earlier question. Are we being arrogant if we declare there is no other name by which we must be saved. Some people will certainly think we are, but I don't believe we are, and the reason is that we are simply saying what Jesus himself said, doing what he himself asked us to do. So in John 14, verse 6, as most of you all know, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And in Matthew 28, he asks us to go and make disciples of all nations. So if we were saying we're more cultured and advanced than you, so naturally our faith is superior, so you'd better believe it, then that is blatant arrogance. I think we'd all agree with that. But if we say humbly we have no superior knowledge or wisdom, but we have met Jesus and he has told us he's the only way to the Father and he has asked us to tell everyone across the world about him, then that's not arrogant. That's just believing what Jesus has said and doing what he has asked us to do. The obvious answer to the suggestion that Christianity is a Western religion, which we are foisting on others, is that it isn't, and never really was. Christianity was born in the Middle East, and the majority of Christian believers today are African, Asian, or South American, not European or, or North American. Another very powerful argument from me that there is no other route to God is the horror of the crucifixion and the agony of Jesus the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. I cannot believe God would have planned and endured this terrible event if there were any other way of salvation. When Jesus pleaded in anguish, if it be possible, take this cup away from me, would God not have answered that prayer if there was indeed another way and the cross was not absolutely essential to salvation? What we see repeatedly throughout the Bible, beginning to end, is God claiming to be the one true Lord, to be approached in the way that he has designed and revealed. In the New Testament, for example, another, later in Acts, we'll probably come to it in a few weeks, we see the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And we see that God doesn't say to good people in other belief systems, just be a good worshipper of Roman gods, that's fine by me. What we see is that God sees their good deeds, he loves their desire for him, he sees their good hearts, but he still gives them the opportunity to hear about Jesus. So in the case of Cornelius, he has a dream which leads to him sending for Peter, who God has also miraculously prepared for that encounter. And the point is that Cornelius was a devout man of faith, but he still needed to know about Jesus. I personally think that it's likely that our gracious and merciful God will accept those who have recognised their need of God and sought him with humble hearts without knowing about Jesus. This is a difficult area, so we won't go into detail this morning. If that were so, I believe it wouldn't be because of their religious observance or their good deeds, but it would be because, because of their humble acknowledgement of their need of God. So if we accept that we must still proclaim that Jesus is the name by which people must be saved, how do we speak to others about this? With humility and respect, of course, this is a picture of myself and another lady in Pakistan. Ian and I worked in Pakistan back in the 1990s. So with humility and respect, be willing to listen and understand others' experiences and viewpoints. When we were there, we were extremely careful to adapt in every way we could to Pakistani culture and to build warm and respectful relationships with our neighbours who were almost entirely Muslim. We are very unlikely to win people to faith in Jesus by logical argument, although it does sometimes happen. 
The disciples came to a belief in Jesus as Lord and Saviour from a fiercely monotheistic background. They weren't open to the idea that their friend could be God. That wasn't any way in their religious background. Two things were vital for the disciples on that journey. And the same things will be key for people of any background coming to faith, whether that's followers of another religion, atheists, or people who have a secular view of life and are just not interested in faith, whatever it is. Those two things. Firstly, the disciples encountered Jesus. They walked and talked with him. They saw the things he did, his extraordinary power, his astounding compassion. And they started to ask, who is this? Who is this that the wind and waves obey him? People around us today can't have that physical encounter with Jesus, although some people do encounter him in their dreams. But they can encounter him through us. Not usually, fortunately, by us trying to explain the Trinity or the deity of Christ, but by us talking about the wonderful things that he does, the way he has forgiven us, the way he gives us peace, the way he gives us purpose the way that he's removed our fear of death. These things can lead to people around us, of any religion or none, starting to ask, who is this that can change people's lives like this? And secondly, in the case of the disciples, it was the work of the Holy Spirit enlightening them. We see when Peter first declares his faith in who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus responds with, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So we can pray for God's revelation into the lives of those around us. You'll be pleased to know that was by far the longest of the three sections. So now let's look briefly at Peter's bold challenge to the Jewish leaders in verse 19. Which is right in God's eyes, he says, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. I've personally found this verse quite challenging over the years. I worked in the NHS for many years, and as you may know, most staff are not generally allowed to pray with patients. I do understand there are reasons for this, and I accept the intention isn't to be anti-Christian, it is to protect patients. But sometimes when I heard this verse, I would feel uneasy. Am I following a human command rather than God's command? These are not easy questions, and some of you may have similar questions in your work settings or family life. And as we wrestle with, with these issues individually and together about where we draw lines, what it's right for us to do, what it's not right for us to do, we also need to weigh the teaching in Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, and there we are taught, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. So it's trying to balance those two things up, really, when we challenge and when we accept the, uh, the ruling that we've been given. Uh, I read one suggestion that where we draw the line is when we, together as God's church, are being forbidden to do something that is key to our Christian identity and mission, which obviously was the case for the disciples here. It's not an easy area, and I think it's something we need to work through as a community. And when one of us is struggling with something, we need to talk to somebody else about it and pray through it together and try and work out what is the right way forward. 
but I would end by saying that I think we probably, or at least I do, are on the side of caution. It's very easy for us to be cautious and to do the thing that won't rock the boat and not take risks. And this is very much not what Peter was doing. He definitely rocked the boat here. And then the third section is the prayer of the disciples for boldness. After the public confrontation with that intimidating group of the Sanhedrin, we might have expected them to go home and to pray for protection and for God to destroy the opposition. And I think that's what I would have prayed for, at least the protection bit. But they didn't. They went home, gathered together with their friends, and prayed that God would give them boldness not to be intimidated and to go on proclaiming the message. Again, this is something that I find personally challenging, and we may need to ask ourselves individually and together, do we want to be bold? Do we want to pray that God will anoint us with the Holy Spirit to enable us to be bold, to declare his word and demonstrate his power? Or do we want to keep our heads down and avoid trouble? The title that I was given for this chapter of Acts was The Persecution Begins. The disciples here were facing potential persecution head on. They didn't want opposition, but above all, they wanted to fulfill the commission that Jesus had given them. To declare his message and to demonstrate his kingdom. So they pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's their choice to pray and to ask for that boldness, but the power itself comes from God. And those two things often work together in our lives. We make a choice and step out, then God gives us the power to follow through on that. Just before we went to work in Pakistan back in the 90s, um, threats had been made against foreign and Pakistani Christian workers in an extremist newspaper in Pakistan. And in response to that, one of our British colleagues, who we came to know very well, called Phil Simpson, he was there working in drug rehab and church leadership, decided to lead the Christians in Karachi in a public march of witness. So those believers faced the threat head on by choosing to come out into the open and not to hide away, which would have been very easy and very understandable. Another of our colleagues later commented, Phil was like a lion that day. Phil was there and overheard this and replied with some embarrassment, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And it was indeed the power of the Holy Spirit working through him and empowering him with that extraordinary boldness. I'm just going to talk a little more about the issue of persecution, as that was my title this morning. A lot has been said by... about persecution, sorry, often by people who have had little contact with it. And we can sometimes be a little bit shallow in what we say and think about it. I guess Ian and I have sort of been at the edges of seeing how persecution affects people, although very minimally affected ourselves, but have seen the effect on other people's lives. Um, You've probably heard that statement that's up there. It goes right back to the second century, so it's been around a long time from Tertullian. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it has led to a view that persecution can almost be quite a good thing because it causes the church to grow. I'm just going to read something from an author that I read about this. It's called Glenn Pinner. 
And Glenn says, the notion that persecution always causes church growth is so widespread that it's considered irrefutable by some. An accompanying assumption is that persecution typically causes the church to be purified and believers to walk more closely with God. Thus, persecution is often seen to have a benefit from the church. All of these beliefs have a measure of truth to them. There is a danger, however, in assuming that persecution invariably causes church growth. It may result in a lack of awareness and concern for the increasing persecution of Christians around the world, as believers in the West can feel no great need to address the issue if it's helping the church to grow. End of quote. From my own knowledge, there are at least two examples, which are Turkey and Japan, where extreme persecution has almost wiped out a thriving church, which decades on is still struggling to recover from that fierce persecution that they went through. So let's keep a balanced view of persecution and remember that our brothers and sisters who are suffering overt and obvious persecution are not superheroes. They're fallible, vulnerable human beings like ourselves. Some st stand strong with courage given by the Holy Spirit, and others cave into intolerable pressure and then battle with guilt and shame at having denied the Lord. So let's not be triumphalistic about this. I'm just going to tell you two stories to illustrate this. So when Ian and I were preparing to go to Pakistan, our two sons that we had at that time were five and two. And I heard, as we were preparing to go, stories of foreigners being kidnapped for ransom. And I knew that the policy of our charity, like most, was that they would never pay ransoms if a worker was kidnapped. I was seized with a real fear and anxiety for the safety of my children. And coming to that place of trust in God and getting on the plane to go was agonizing. <laughs> I didn't go blithely singing, hallelujah, whatever happens, God will be glorified. I battled with a real painful fear and anxiety. And our brothers and sisters in Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, China, wherever, are made of the same flesh and blood that we are. They also battle those, those fears and anxieties and that, that anguish. I also had the opportunity about three years ago to visit a South Korean Christian worker who's now in Turkey. He was there because he and his family had been kicked out of Iran. He had been running a business in Iran while discreetly sharing about Jesus and leading a Christian group in his house. When his secret was discovered through an informer, the police turned up and all of the members of his group were arrested. He was deported as a foreigner, but all, and all but one of the new believers under police pressure agreed to renounce their new faith. This lovely man told us his story with tears of anguish and shame as he felt it was his fault that he had the details of his friends that they'd been discovered on his computer. He felt as if he had betrayed them and he was weeping with two years on from this with the shame and, and uh, hurt of what, what had happened. So we, the group who were there, prayed for him for healing and restitution and prayed for those who had renounced their faith under police pressure and for the one who had stood firm and had suffered more. So that is the reality of persecution. It's not all um, you know, coping gloriously through difficult circumstances. It can be a real, real battle. 
So as we come to a close for this bit, let's just briefly recap and think about what God, how God may be asking us to respond. So we've looked at Peter's assertion that Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. Do we need to look again at our own hearts? Are we convinced of the uniqueness of Jesus? If so, what does it mean for our commitment to make him known to others? We've looked at Peter's challenge as to whether we should listen to God or human edicts. And if God is challenging you about that this morning, I suggest you find someone to pray the issue through with. And finally, we've thought about the reality of persecution in our world and the disciples' passionate prayer for boldness. Boldness often has consequences. Is God challenging us to pray a similar prayer this morning? And what are we going to do about it? Let's just have a few moments of quiet to respond in our hearts to what God is saying to us this morning before we move on to our time of communion. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that you have made a way that we can know the Father, that we can know God as our Father. We thank you for that. Father, you know that some of the things in this passage are challenging issues, and I pray that you will help each of us, Father. For some of us, maybe it's just an interesting thing to listen to. For others, it's maybe put a finger on something very specific that we need to deal with. Lord, please help each one of us as we hear your voice and as we respond this morning. Guide us as to what the next steps are if there is something that we need to do. Father, we do pray together that you will give us boldness. It's a big prayer, but Lord, we pray that you will give us boldness to be your people, to be the people that you want us to be in this community, in this city, in this world. We pray that you will fill us with the boldness to be what you want us to be. 